in our series, The Not-So-Minor Prophets, we come to Obadiah. And to really understand the context of Obadiah, um, we need to go all the way back to Genesis. Now, if you are following along in your Bibles, you'll see that Obadiah is one, maybe two pages. So it's very, very small, right? Um, But the story of what's being talked about here, the history of what's going on, goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis, God called a, a man named Abraham to go to a land that he would show him and to father a nation. And God made a covenant with Abraham that he would be the God of that nation and that they would be his people. Now, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they gave birth to a son named Isaac. And God had promised that Isaac would be born because they'd have had struggles having kids and they were advanced in age. And then Isaac's born. And when Isaac grows up, he marries a girl named Rebecca. Now, Rebecca uh, became pregnant with twins. And it's interesting because in Genesis chapter 25, it tells us that the twins were struggling in the womb. Even in the womb, they're struggling for position in Rebecca's, um, in Rebecca's womb. And when she gave birth to him, she gave birth to two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, right away, there was conflict. Right away, there was strife. In fact, um, Jacob comes out holding Esau's ankle, um, kind of showing that they're always striving for this position. And there were two very different people. Esau was strong. He was kind of a manly man. He was a hunter. And then Jacob liked to kind of do things around the tent, and he was a little bit more gentle, but he was really clever. And that's what we see in the beginning of the early life. Now, this conflict that started in the womb continues on as they grow up. And one time when Esau comes back from hunting, he's starving. Now, that seems weird to us if you go hunting for a weekend or something like that, but oftentimes hunting trips then could last you know, a whole week where you're going out and trying to get as much food as possible and then bring it back. So he comes back and he's starving and Jacob tricks him into selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. Now Esau should not have, he should have had more forethought than that to be like, okay, well, I'll just find food somewhere else. I'm already in camp. Um, But either way, that doesn't negate Jacob's responsibility for being deceptive and kind of taking advantage of Esau's vulnerability in that moment. But so that created a pretty, you know, bitter divide between Jacob and Esau. And this continued to get deeper and deeper, and it reached ahead when their father was on his deathbed. Now, at that time, the father would give a blessing to the oldest child and then blessings to the younger children. These were highly valued. It was believed that this actually would make a real difference in the person's life. And um, so Jacob, with the help of his mother, um, goes in and tricks his father into giving him the blessing, giving him Esau's blessing. Now, Isaac, his father, was blind at the time. He was having difficulty, you know, understanding things and realizing what was going on. And so Jacob disguises himself with, you know, animal fur because it says in Genesis that Esau was extremely hairy, that he was red and hairy. Um, And he goes in and he tricks his blind, dying father to give him Esau's birthright. So you can imagine this did not make Esau very happy. And so he made a promise. He said, I'm not going to do anything to grieve my father, but after he dies, I'm going to go and I'm going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob, um, luckily Jacob's mom overheard this and sends him away, right? And the story just becomes more complex because Jacob, he's kind of a trickster. He likes to deceive people. Well, he goes and stays with his uncle Laban, who is like way better at that than he is. And it kind of humbles him a little bit and changes him. So, um, but so I encourage you to read through that. Well, anyways, they kind of reconcile a little bit at the end of their life, but they still go two different ways. And this feud that began between two brothers continues on as this 
boiling hatred and divide between two nations. So Esau would become the father of the Edomites, and Jacob would become the father of the Israelites. And the Edomites and the Israelites, although linked by blood, would constantly be warring and harming one another. And just to give you an idea of the depth of this conflict, I'm going to read a passage from the book of Numbers. Now, this takes place after Israel has been freed from slavery because they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God's freed them. They're wandering in the desert. And they come to the border of the Edomites' territory. And this is what they say in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 20. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. This is what your brother Israel says. So they're kind of pointing back to that distant heritage. You know all the hardships that we have overtaken us. Our ancestors went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt many years. But the Egyptians treated us and our ancestors badly. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our plea and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now look, we're in Kaddish, a city on the border of your territory. Please let us just travel through your land. We won't travel through any field or vineyard or drink any well water. We'll travel the king's highway. We won't turn to the right or to the left until we have traveled through your territory. So Moses sends a messenger to Edom and says, hey, can we just move? Can we literally just walk through your land? We'll make sure we don't touch any crops or anything like that. We won't even drink the water out of the wells. Just let us travel through the land. And Edom responds, you will not travel through our land or we will come out and confront you with the sword. So Israel replies, we'll go on the main road. The Israelites replied to them, and if we are, if we or our herds drink your water, we'll pay its price. So even if they accidentally drink the water, they'll pay for it. There will be no problem, only let us travel through on foot. Yet Edom insisted, you may not travel, and they came out and confronted them with a large force of heavily armed people. Edom refused to allow Israel to travel through the territory, and Israel turned away from them. The Edomites hated the Israelites so much that they said, you can't travel through our land, and if you do, we'll come out and we'll kill you. And this conflict continues on through the Old Testament, and it reaches a boiling point when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Assyrians in 586 B.C. So as we've been going through this, pro- this prophecy series, or this prophet series, um, you'll be t- you, we would have talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of, Jeru- of Israel kind of over and over. Um, where Obadiah picks it up after that destruction has already pl- taken place. Now, Obadiah is the shortest of the prophets, but it's warning against the danger of pride and its promise of God's justice is vitally important to us today. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Heavenly Father, I ask that you'd fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit as we look into Obadiah today. Guide and direct our conversation. Open up our minds to the truth of your word and transform our lives and our hearts so that we fall more deeply in love with you and our lives match up with the reality of that relationship. We ask that in all things your name be glorified and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to get kind of an idea of the setting. We kind of have a, um, we have a good idea of the background. But we need to get an idea of what's actually going on in Obadiah. This is in verses 1 through 2. It says, The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let's go to war against her. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. So the prophet here is going to be Obadiah, which name means a servant of Yahweh. 
Now, it's kind of unclear with that name whether that is his actual given name or if that's a title that he's given because of his role. But so he's called Obadiah. And the subject is going to be a, a prophecy against Edom, which he's in pretty good company because as um, the scripture reading from Ezekiel showed us, that was another prophecy against the Edomites. And so there's many times throughout the Old Testament that prophets come and they talk against Edom. And you'll even see later on in the Old Testament that Edom kind of is a stand-in for nations who stand against God or stand against God's people. So there'll be times that they'll talk about Edom, but they're not actually talking about the nation itself. Now, when was this written? The hard thing with Obadiah is that there's no mention of a king or really any exact events that we can kind of go and pinpoint the date. Now, it talks about Edom turning or betraying Jerusalem and coming at them in the day of their distress. And so there's several different dates that we could look at. What seems most convincing, what most scholars say, um, is in 586 BC. Now, 586 BC is when Jerusalem was overtaken by the Assyrians. And what happens, and you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 25, is that the Assyrians come and they surround Jerusalem and they siege it. Now, if you've watched you know, old military movies, a siege often looks like people coming in and destroying the wall, right? It happens in 20 minutes or something. But that's not what happened back in, in ancient Israel. In fact, what they would do is they siege it for two years. So they'd surround the city. They'd kill anybody who came out for water or anybody who came out for food. And basically let the people inside starve, starve to death, die of thirst, or die of illness. And that's what they did. In fact, there's stories in the Bible of just how horrible and how much suffering happened during this siege. Uh, I won't go into all that detail now, but I encourage you, if you're interested, to look into that. Now, what's interesting here, and we'll see a little bit more what Edom does when Jerusalem is destroyed and why that seems like a reasonable date, but... What we'll see here is that um, this is not written to Edom. All the other prophecies that we've looked at, if God says that he's going to bring judgment against this nation or do something like this, um, he's talking to the nation that's receiving judgment. But we see here that the vision of Obadiah, this is what the Lord God has said about Edom. In fact, there's no evidence that this letter was even intended for Edom. Right? It's always talking to the Jewish exiles from the fall of Jerusalem. And this is vitally important to understand who the audience is because we want to take this text and apply it to our lives. And if we're going to do that, we have to know who the, who got, who the message is written to, right? Because this is interpreted very differently if this le- book is written to Edom versus written to Israel. And so that's the question we're going to be looking at as we go through this is, is what God, is God trying to communicate to the exiles of Jerusalem, as they're looking at this judgment against Edom, and why is that important to us? So now that we have the setting straight now, let's look at the sin that Edom is guilty of. And this is in Obadiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. It says, Your arrogant heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, you say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. I feel like it just got really loud there at the end. Kind of worked out. but um, So the sin that God's convicting them of is arrogance or pride. And the geography 
of Edom kind of actually lent itself to this. And you see that he, he talks about this in these verses. So here's just some pictures of what Edom would have looked like. It's two different pictures. So um, this is Petra. Now, a lot of the structures were built by the Persians later on, but this is the region that Edom was in. And you'll see that they had not this exact structure, but they had structures built into the side of the rocks. They had these very narrow canyons, which um, in one of the Indiana Joneses is actually filled there and in Petra, and they run through the canyon. And so it could very easily be defended with very few people because you could either kind of bottleneck people within the canyon or you could have people up top throwing down rocks or something like that. Um, and so they had a lot of pride, not just in the fact that they could live in such an inhospitable area, but that they were able to use that to their advantage to keep them very, very secure. Now, the core sin that Edom is guilty of is pride. And they're going to go, it's going to go on and talk a little bit more about how that actually worked itself out, especially in their relationship with Israel. But raise your hand if you've ever heard of this, the seven deadly sins. Yeah, so that, that became pretty popular in Dante Inferno, or Dante's Inferno, that book. But it, its history goes back a long, long way. So in the 300s AD, there was a monk who actually wrote something about the eight evil thoughts. And basically that these were thoughts or patterns of behavior that if they infected your heart and your mind, they would lead into deeper and deeper sins. And pride was one of the ones that he pointed out. And then Gregory the Great, he wrote a commentary on Job, and he actually called pride the, the, the queen of sins, the root of all sin. And we look, and throughout history, Christians have identified pride as this, this sin that if it's present in your life, it just leads to further and further sin and destruction. And this is exactly what we see in Scripture as well. If you go back all the way back to Genesis, um, the first chapters of Genesis, um, that's what Adam and Eve were tempted with, was the opportunity to take the position of God and claim the authority that God had to say what was right and wrong. And that's the sin that Edom is guilty of. Now, Edom's pride led them to do horrible things, and because of that, God has some pretty harsh words for them. He says in verse 5, If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Why not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Temin, your warriors will be terrified. Set everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. God says to them, think about some of the worst people that you would want at your doorstep. Robbers who come in and take things that don't belong to them, who sneak in in the middle of the night and steal your possessions. Even they have a limit on what they can take. He says marauders, or another word for that would be raiders, people who come in not just to steal, but to ravage the people in the land. And he says, even them have a limit on how much chaos and destruction they can cause. But the judgment that God is going to bring against Edom is going to be limitless. There's not going to be a, 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 a limit to how total that destruction will be. It says that all their lofty claims and all their sources of pride will be completely eradicated. Now, one interesting thing to note about Obadiah is that there's no call to repentance. Unlike the other prophets, there's no 
offer to say, if you turn away, then this, this will be avoided. But it's just the declaration of judgment. So what did the pride of Edom lead them to do that was so horrible that demands such a harsh response and a harsh judgment from God? We'll see in the next verses here. Ten through fourteen. You'll be covered with shame and destroyed forever, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, on the day strangers or while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not let my people city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster, and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. Do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, Edom celebrated their destruction. They saw the, the suffering and stuff that was going on in Israel, and they not only mocked the Israelites, but they actually joined in. So we read from this and from other passages of Scripture that as the Assyrians came in and burnt down the city, as the walls came down and people were fleeing for their lives, and fire was erupting in all the houses, the Edomites ran in and they looted the city. And then they had others who stood outside, and as the Israelites were trying to run into the fields and run into the wilderness, they stopped them and turned them over to the Assyrians. They captured their distant relatives and handed them over to Assyria. In fact, there's a, a psalm written about this from the perspective of the Israelites. And this is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees. For our captors there asked us for songs and tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it, down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. And now obviously the psalm, Psalm 137, shows the raw anger and sadness that Israel has, not just at the destruction of Jerusalem, but that even as even those who were trying to flee were stopped by Edom, as they remember this, as they look back at this, you can see it just how total the hatred that Edom had for them was, and now that's led into further bitterness and further hatred between the Israelites and Edomites. But we have to remember that Jerusalem was not innocent, right? As we've looked through the prophets, we've seen that God has promised his judgment against Jerusalem because he's offered them time and time again to turn from their wickedness, turn from their idolatry, and be saved. To come back to him and return to him. And he's saying, if I let them go down to the rock bottom, then they'll remember me, right? If they don't recognize me in my presence, they'll recognize me in my absence. And on top of all the prophets that we've read 
Um, Second Chronicles says this about Jerusalem as it was leading up to its destruction. But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, saying them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. Even though the, ju- the judgment against Jerusalem was justified, even though it was necessary to bring them to repentance, and even though they brought this upon themselves, it was still wicked of Edom to celebrate. Pride had so poisoned the mind of the Edomites that they not only glorified and celebrated the destruction of Jerusalem, but they magnified the suffering. And this is a vitally important lesson to us today because you see it from pastors, you see it from you know, keyboard warriors, you see it from politicians and in co- casual conversation. That many of us in society have been infected with this sick sense of pride or self-righteousness where we look at the, the moral failings of somebody who's maybe on the other political spectrum or part of a, a different um, philosophy or something, or we look at somebody who seems to be our enemy and we celebrate the fact that they had that failure. We celebrate the fact that they're getting what they deserve. And you see this not just in secular culture, but you see this in the church. If you read Christianity Today, which has great articles and a lot of stuff, over and over and over again, there'll be people celebrating the destruction of some mega pastor, right? We laugh at the moral failures of our political opponents. We celebrate the death and destruction of our enemies. And we look at people who have done horrible things and see the the sentences that they get or the judgment that they face and celebrate that they're finally getting what they deserve. But that's not what Jesus said, right? Well, he talks about justice and he talks about judgment. It says that Jesus said that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. In the Book of Common Prayer that we pray as part of that group, there's this passage from Ezekiel that we quote every time after you say the confession of sin. And it says in Ezekiel 33, As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. And we often apply this text to ourselves and our own lives when we fall into sin or we fall into moral failure and we present that and lay that before God. But then when we see it happen to somebody else, especially somebody that we're not very fond of or somebody that we consider an enemy, we apply the exact opposite logic. We, like Edom, celebrate that they faced the judgment and destruction that they deserved. And this comes from a a sense of pride where we put ourselves above the other group or above the other person and think, you know, that could never happen to us, right? We're never going to face the justice or the judgment from the sins that we commit or our sins are somehow less deserving of judgment than theirs. We should take this warning seriously because God said that this this, this judgment is not just for Edom. In verses 15 through 16, it says, For the day of the Lord is near against all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. When Jerusalem fell, Edom gorged itself on the chaos and destruction of the city. 
fueled by pride, they got drunk on the bloodshed. And God says that on the day of the Lord, all the people who like Edom thrived off, gorged themselves on the destruction or the suffering of others will receive more chaos and destruction than they can handle. He goes on to describe more what will happen specifically to Edom. And it's amazing looking back years later how you can see this actually having come to fulfillment. But there will be deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord, oh, it's cut off there, has spoken. So what we see in verse 18 is that it says that Edom will be consumed by the house of Jacob and Esau. So now, or Jacob and, and Joseph. So remember, Edom are descendants from Esau, and Jacob and Joseph are descendants, uh, well, they're, they're part of the tribe of Israel. After Jerusalem fell, Edom was taken over shortly after. Actually, it was taken over several times by the Persians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians at different times. And what ended up happening is that the people, the Edomite people, were scattered. And they settled around, and they ended up settling actually in the Jewish area. We actually see them in the New Testament, and they're called Edomians. And so, um, in fact, one of the Herods, I can't remember which one at this point, was half Jewish and half Edomian. Because what happened was the Edomites, now called Edomians, um, lived among the Jewish people and intermarried with them to such an extent, and they'd been so destroyed by their past conquerings, that there was very little genetic distinction between an Edomite and an Israelite. They'd kind of been assimilated into the Israelite population. Now, this became even more severe, and you can see how closely they're linked because there's a great Jewish revolt in 135 AD. This is kind of the last great stand of the Jewish people against Rome. And it was pretty successful at the beginning. But Rome eventually said, okay, we're done messing around. We're not going to send like half our army. They just came in and they squashed the revolt. And in the past, they would sometimes just get rid of the leader or disperse the people. But this time they came in with a heavy hand. And they came in and destroyed a lot of the people and virtually all Edomites. And you can see this today because you can go and you can have your genes test and they can tell you if you're part Jewish. There's no such thing for Edomites. There's no recognizable group or genetic grouping for the Edomite people. Obadiah ends his prophecy with a promise of blessing and restoration, not for Edom, but for Israel. Verse 19, he says, People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephard, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So he promises that while Edom will be wiped off the face of the earth, that Israel will be restored. And that as they come back, um, that the kingdom will be the Lord's. So not only will they be destroy, restored to their promised land, but that their distance from God and their rejection from God that led to the destruction of Jerusalem will be reversed. That they'll be calling on the Lord and that the Lord will be their God. 
Now, I know that Obadiah has some pretty heavy stuff in it, right? It's not a, an easy book, and that's the whole book. We just went through the whole thing. But it's packed with heavy verses and harsh words of judgment. And unlike the other prophets, there's not a call to repentance or a promise of deliverance for the nation facing judgment. But we have to remember that this was, Obadiah was not written to Edom. It was written to the Israelites, to the exiles of Jerusalem. And if we keep that in mind, then we see that this is both a warning and a promise. First, God warns that pride leads to destruction. That pride leads to the justification of horrible acts against people. It leads to rejoicing at the suffering of others because it encourages us to declare ourselves as somehow above. That somehow we can look from our lofty position and say that they deserved it. We live in a society that glorifies pride and celebrates the demise of those we see as our enemies. And so how should we respond in our current culture to this warning from Obadiah? And funny enough, I think um, Ambrose of Milan, who wrote in 397 AD, has some important words for us. This is a prayer that he wrote. And first grant that I may know how with inmost affection to mourn with those who sin. For this is a very great virtue. Since it is written, and you shall not rejoice over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, and speak not proudly in the day of their trouble. Grant that so often as the sin of anyone who has fallen is made known to me, I may suffer with him, and not chide him proudly, but mourn and weep. So that weeping over another, I may mourn for myself, saying, Tamar has been more righteous than I. Our first response when we hear of the sin or a downfall of someone, especially somebody that we consider to be an enemy, should be to pray and to mourn. To pray that God would win their souls, that he would turn them away from their wickedness, and that they would live. And to mourn that sin has such a, such a hold on them, such a hold on people that God deeply loves. God challenges us to pray for, to, for, for our enemies, to recognize sin for the devouring beast that it is, and to mourn the fact that it's claimed so many people. Not to pray for destruction, but for deliverance. And as we pray in this way, even when it's hard, because let's just be frank, we live in a world where there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of injustice, and there's a lot of sin and evil. And so when we pray for those that we consider enemies, this may be difficult, and our heart may not actually be behind every single word. But as we surrender that over to God, he'll transform our heart and our mind that the words that we say will actually become a reality in our heart. So next time we see a story on social media or read an article in the paper or on the newsfeed or something, and we see that so-and-so has fallen or so-and-so has, has faced some demise, the first thing we should do is sit and pray, to mourn the fact that that happened and to pray that God would win their hearts and turn them towards him. Obadiah also contains a promise that one day perfect justice will be served. Now, like many people, when I read passages about the wrath of God, um, there are times when it's, it's difficult to wrap your mind around. Not because I don't believe in God's wrath or believe that he's a just judge, but because you think, couldn't there have been another way? Couldn't there have been something else? The, the loving quality of God's righteous judgment was made more known to me when we were in a prayer group in college and Somebody had stopped, kind of paused the prayer, and was talking about how they were wrestling with the wrath of God and how that worked out in their, in their theology and in their hearts. 
And there was a girl there who'd been kind of quiet the most of the time. And, and she spoke up and she said, you know, when I was young, I was hurt really bad by somebody who was close to me. That person went their whole life and never faced justice. Nobody believed the things I said. They were never arrested. They never went to prison. They died happy and wealthy, never facing up to the sins that they committed. She says, but I know that God believed me, that he knows what happens, and that right now that person is facing justice. There is no such thing as a righteous, loving God without perfect justice and wrath. The promise of God's perfect justice means that it's not our responsibility to make sure that the score is settled, but that we can lay it at the feet of Jesus. And so I invite you today, if you're carrying that burden around, to pray and lay that at the feet of Jesus. Ask him to help you surrender that at his feet because it's not something that you can just do or most people can just do without help and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean to sit back and do nothing and not talk about real problems, but to proclaim to ourselves that vengeance is the Lord's and to rest in the promise of his perfect justice. And if you're carrying that burden and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you don't have that relationship with him, I, I invite you to just simply pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins, to take that burden off your shoulders and to be the Lord of your life. Because he promises he will give us a peace and love that surpasses all understanding. Let's pray. Almighty God, I ask that as we leave here this morning, that you'd forgive us of all of our sins, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that you would eradicate any pride that's stuck in us, that when we see others fall or others stumble, that you would fill us with hearts that mourn that, and that pray for them, and not ones that rejoice or are filled with glee at the destruction of an enemy. And if we're carrying burdens around, Lord, enable us to lay that at your feet. Help us feel the weight lifted off and the peace and your comfort surround us. We ask that in all things your name be glorified and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.